Hey, we're in Genesis chapter 25, first 11 cha- or verses. <clears throat> and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be you know, talking about um, Abraham's last will and testament and his obituary. And so as we think about that, I just want to read this illustration to you. It's witnessing to the holy love of God was always in John Wesley's mind, even in death. Here was a man who had preached more than 45,000 sermons, traveled mostly on horseback, a distance equivalent to nine times around the world. Let that sink in for a minute. By horseback. (laughs) Written 233 books and pamphlets and helped with the writing of a hundred more. But for Wesley, this was not enough. Even in death, he witnessed to the love of God. Among Wesley's funeral instructions was the request that his body be buried in nothing more costly than wool. No silk or satin was to adorn the corpse from which his spirit had fled. And his last will and testament gave final seal to the gospel he had so long and courageously preached He directed that whatever remains in my bureau and pockets at my decease was to be equally divided among four poor itinerants. So these are pastors that were riding from place to place on horseback. He's like, whatever is left, divided among all four of them. He wanted the gospel to continue to go forth, didn't he? He specially requested that neither hearse nor coach take any part in his funeral, and he desired that six poor men in need of employment be given a pound each to carry his body to the grave. Wow. I know, think about uh, William Otterbein, one of the founders of the United Brethren in Christ denomination. In reading the history of the, de- of the denomination, uh, one of the books, it talks about the fact that Otterbein requested that all of his sermons like, be burned, just be destroyed. He didn't want anyone to look to him in his death and go, oh, look what Otterbein said. He wanted people to turn to Christ. So like upon his death, he, that was one of the things that he had requested, that all of his sermons be destroyed. Well, you know, after having the Life Institute come uh, several months ago for the Stewardship Lifestyle Seminar, Judy and I decided that we needed to update our will. The last time we had a will written was when the kids were just tiny. I'm not even sure that Levi was around at that point. So um, uh, when this, you know, when they came uh, around, we were like, we need to update our will. And I don't think we had a power of attorney or a living will previously, so we added those to the list. And just last week or the week before, we received um, um, just by email a draft to review and we're looking forward to having those documents up to date. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't really put a lot of thought into what I want in my obituary. Perhaps none of us have really thought much about that. The standard items will probably be there, like who has survived my death, who has preceded me in death, who my parents and wife were and when and where I died. And perhaps it will have what church I was a member of at the time, I'd like everyone to know that I was passionate about following Jesus as my master. I hope that comes through. I would want people to know that I loved my wife, my children, uh, and their spouses and my grandchildren with all my heart and that I'm so proud of them for the men and women of God that they've become. And I also hope that people would remember me for being passionate about teaching God's word and the importance of prayer. We all should have a will, a power of attorney, and a living will. And so, have you done that? Hopefully you have. If not, I encourage you to. Has anyone thought about his or her obituary? 
Would you, uh, what would you like it to contain? Are you, or are you going to write it yourself or leave that responsibility to the funeral director and your surviving family members? In the conclusion this morning, you'll hear of a guy who wrote his own obituary before he passed. But Abraham has lived a good, long life and has experienced the faithfulness of God. Isaac is married to Rebekah, and they have twin sons. In the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 25, we see Abraham's last will and testament and his obituary. Abraham has remained faithful to the covenant that God began with him and instructed him to continue through Isaac. Abraham establishes that covenant in such a way that no one will question that Isaac is the covenant heir. And so through Abraham's example, we're going to learn today that obedience to God's covenant brings blessing. And so let's just commit this to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you that you are a a God of covenants, that you created this covenant with Abraham, you created a covenant with uh, the Israelites, you created a new covenant through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we worship you for that today. Lord, we come before you as humble servants, asking that your Holy Spirit would illumine our mind to the passage today, that we would learn what you want us to learn. I pray, Lord God, as your mouthpiece today, that I wouldn't say anything that you don't want me to say, and I would speak truth. And so, Lord, we just commit our time to you now for your honor and glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at these verses. And let's find out what they have <clears throat> to tell us today. We're just going to read the first six verses, which is basically the last will and testament. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Yokshan, Medon, Midian, Yishbak, and Shua. Yokshan was the father of Shavah and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Ledushites, and the Laomites. The son of Madan, or Midan, were Afer, Apha, Afer, Hanuk, and Avida, and Eldaah. <coughs> All these were descendants of Keturah. And then it goes on. It says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. And so we see this genealogy with Keturah. It says that Abraham took another wife. Now, scholars are split on whether Abraham married Keturah before or after Sarah's death. I mean, the commentaries are split down the middle. Even the translations, different translations of the Bible are split down the middle <clears throat> when it pertains to, did Abraham take Keturah before or after Sarah's death? And so I'm going to give you both sides, and you just get to decide today for yourself. All right, here they are. Both sides have compelling arguments. So if those that believe it was after Sarah's death... The sentence structure seems to indicate that Abraham married Keturah after Sarah died. 
Abraham lived another 37 years after Sarah's death, so he certainly would have, uh, could have fathered six more sons during that time period. God had renewed his vital powers in order to father Isaac in his old age. He was 100 years old, and he said, my body is as good as dead. <laughs> so certainly God could have allowed um, those vital powers to continue after Isaac's birth and Sarah's death. God's all-powerful. There's nothing that's impossible for him, so certainly that could happen. And if Abraham waited until Isaac was married to take Keturah as his wife, there would have been 35 years until his death, which would have been plenty of time for the youngest son to be 20 or 25 when he is given gifts and sent away. Ishmael was 15 when he and his mother were sent away with food and water. <clears throat> so plenty of time there. So those are some compelling arguments, right? That it happened after Sarah's death. What about before Sarah's death? She's identified as a concubine in verse 6, which would indicate that Abraham took her as another wife while Sarah was still alive. This was a second wife. This was, um, Sarah was still the primary wife there, so she would be referred to as a concubine. The Hebrew word for took can also be translated as had taken. And in fact, in the footnote of the uh, NIV Bible, the Life Application Bible I'm reading from today, has that footnote, had taken, which would leave room for the possibility that Keturah became his wife while Sarah was still living. The narrator has not put everything in chronological order in uh, the book of Genesis here, and especially in this particular section. So perhaps the mention of Abraham taking another wife happens prior to Sarah's death. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34 that we're going to see in several weeks, the narrator will share the details of Jacob and Esau's birth. Abraham is still alive when the twins are born. In fact, Jacob and Esau are 15 years old when Abraham dies. Isaac married at 40 years old. Abraham is 140 when he got married. Jacob and Esau are born when Isaac is 60, which means Abraham is 160. Abraham dies at 175, therefore making Jacob and Esau 15 years old. So the narrative about Abraham's death precedes the narrative about the birth of Jacob and Esau. And so the narratives are not in chronological order. So certainly they're bringing this up now right at his death, but that doesn't mean that, um, she, uh, that he married her before or after, perhaps. Fortunately, here you go, and this is where you get to decide. Fortunately, the main point of this passage doesn't stand or fall on whether or not we can determine if Abraham married Keturah before or after Sarah's death. It doesn't matter. <laughs> You're like, what? All of that to just say it doesn't matter? Yeah, I'll let you choose which one you want, before or after. We see Abraham's sons here, grandsons and great-grandsons. We're not going to spend a lot of time here other than just letting you know what their names mean and a little bit about Midian because the Midianites show up a bunch uh, throughout the, the rest of the Bible. So Zimron, his name means musician. Yokshan means snarer, like someone who snares. Uh, Med, Medon means contention. I'm not, I'm not sure I want that name, right? And Midian means strife. That's not another particularly wonderful name, right, uh, to name your kids, but... Let's talk about the Midianites here for just a little bit. They're located east of the Gulf of Aqaba. And so you're going to see, um, I think I have the map in there. Um, at the, th this is the Red Sea. The Red Sea kind of goes down that way for you all. And the circle that you see is like, at the very top of that is the Gulf of Aqaba. And that's where the Midianites kind of settled. That was to the southeast of where um, 
Isaac and his wife were at. In fact, if you look at that map, uh, that it kind of tells the land kind of makes a V shape going up there. Uh, just kind of in the middle of that is where, um, closer to the top, is where Isaac's going to settle, as we'll see it here at the end of this passage of Scripture today. They traded in gold and incense. And Walton says in his commentary, in the Pentateuch, the Midianites initially have neutral standing as the traders who transport Joseph to Egypt. So these are the traders. They, they, pick, you know, they pick Joseph up out of this well, and they take him down to Egypt. And then a favorable standing because Moses marries into the family of the priest of Midian, Jethro. That's a good thing. And by the end of the period, however, they are in collusion with the Moabites in the disaster of Baal Peor, an event that places them firmly in the category of antagonists to Israel. So they went from kind of neutral to it was a good relationship to, oh my goodness. <laughs> they, didn't want any, they wanted to come against the Israelites and God's people. We know that Yishbak means he releases and Shua means wealth. So those were his sons, and then we see his grandsons from uh, Yokshan. They were Shavah, which means seven, or an oath. Dedan, which means low country. And then from Midian's uh, sons, we see uh, Epha, which is gloomy. I'm guessing that was the weather that day when he was born, right? It was just kind of a cloudy, rainy day, and they're like, oh, we're going to name him gloomy. Afer, or, yeah, Afer means a calf. Hanuk means dedicated. Avidah means my father knows. And then Elda'ah means God has known. And then we see these great-grandsons, the descendants of Dadan, and in, all of them are in the plural, in the original language. So the Ashuri means steps, but it's the Ashurites, so it's plural. Really what it's talking about here is a group of people. It's not particularly just an individual, but more a group of people. That's why it's in the plural. Ledushim, or the Ledushites, means hammered. And then uh, the Leumims, or Leomites, is peoples. It just means peoples. And so that kind of brings us to our first principle today. That God keeps his promises. Oh, I should have told you about that. You can see where the dawn is at. They're in the same area. Um, again, that's um, uh, an up-close, uh, closer picture of the Red Sea in that uh, area where the Midianites are at. Uh, thanks, John. <laughs> I need to look up more often, right? <clears throat> so, this first principle. God had made a covenant with Abraham, as we saw in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 to 6. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be uh, Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you uh, very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And so the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham to reflect his, this covenant with him. And what we see with the genealogy through Keturah is God keeping his promise to Abraham. These additional six sons and their descendants would be nations of people didn't say that they would be favorable towards the chosen people of God. And what we see <clears throat> is God just keeping his promise to Abraham. Obedience to God's covenant brings blessing. Abraham was experiencing God's blessing through this. And you know, God continues to keep his promises today. He's not failed to keep every promise that he has made in Scripture and there are some promises that are waiting to be fulfilled when Jesus returns a second time. 
So how have you seen God keep his promises to you? I want you to take a moment just to think about that or to write it down. Because sometimes we need to be reminded of that, right? Maybe we need to keep a journal of, of those times that we've seen God keep his promises to us. So that in those times where it's really difficult, when we're going through a tough time, we can get out that journal and we can say, oh, but this is what God did. This is how he moved. This is the promise that he kept to me. And so I encourage you to take time to do that. Are there some promises from his word that you need to claim for yourself today? I'm just going to give you four, but there's so many more than that. He promises us peace. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, he says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. I'm reminded of that other passage of Scripture. I don't remember the reference right now, but it says, you know, that he'll, he'll give us a peace that passes all understanding that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So God promises us peace. Maybe you need to claim that promise today. Maybe you need to claim the, co- the promise of provision. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe you need to claim his promise of protection. Psalm chapter 91, verse 4 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Or maybe you need to claim his promise of his presence. We see that in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it quotes this from Deuteronomy 31, where it says, He'll never leave you or forsake you. And verse 6 says, So we can say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. He promises his presence. And then again, like I said, there are many more promises that you can claim from God's word. But where are you at today? Maybe you need to make that first uh, next step or take that first next step on the back of your communication card. It says to claim God's promise of. Fill in that blank. Maybe it's peace. Maybe it's provision, protection, presence. Maybe it's something else. I encourage you to be thinking about that today and make that step. This genealogy is important because of what happens in verses 5 and 6. We see the last will and testament of Abraham. He leaves everything to Isaac. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we already heard this in Genesis chapter 24, verse 36. The narrator already mentioned it. And this is Abraham's servant that went to go find Rebekah. He's talking to Rebekah's family, and this is what he says to them. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And while Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son, he was the firstborn son of Abraham uh, to Abraham and Sarah, which was the covenant couple in God's eyes. We hear this so many times. Uh, we saw it through Genesis already where Abraham's like, well, can't you just, can't you just use Ishmael as the covenant son? Can't, will you bless him too? And God says, I'll bless him too, but this is coming through you and Sarah, not through you and, and Hagar, a concubine. No, it's coming through you and your primary first wife, Sarah. That's the covenant. And so as the firstborn son of covenant, Isaac receives all, that is, uh, all of his father's possessions. And we know he was wealthy. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2 tells us this. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. We know that when he went down to Egypt and, and tried to trick uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was like, what are you doing? 
Just take your wife and go. Why did you lie to me? And here's some flocks and some herds, and here's some gold and some silver. Here's some men's servants and, and, and women's servants. Just take them and get out of here. And then he does the same thing to Abimelech, right? The king. And, and, and the king's like, what did I ever do to you that would cause you to lie to me and for you to treat me this way? And he goes, um, Abraham, here you go. Here's your wife. Take her back and get out of my land. Get out of my kingdom. And he goes, here's some flocks, here's some herds, here's some men servants and maid servants, and uh, here's some gold and silver, and Sarah, here's a thousand pieces of shackle, silver pieces, and just go. And so we see that. And also in Genesis chapter 23, verse 6, when um, Abraham is trying to buy, uh, you know, this cave, to bury Sarah in. The Hittites say to him, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. That title tells us that he's wealthy, that he has all kinds of resources. Bury your dead in the choices of our tomb. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Now, this does not mean that Abraham did not love his other sons or provide for them from his wealth. He gives gifts to everyone else. While Abraham was still alive, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. The word concubines is in the plural. And to our knowledge, through Scripture, the only two concubines that Abraham had were Hagar and Keturah. Hagar is only referred to as a maidservant in Genesis 16.2 and as a slave woman in Genesis 21.10. But Wolke states this, she probably could be designated a concubine. Similarly, Bilhah is called both a maidservant and a concubine. <clears throat> that was with Jacob. Keturah is designated as a concubine in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, when Ezra lists the ancestry of the nations. He, he calls uh, Keturah Abraham's concubine. Neither of these women were the covenant or first wife of Abraham. That honor rested with Sarah. But Abraham still provided for them when Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, they were given some food and a skin of water. We see that in Genesis 21, 14. And we know that when the skin of water was running out, Hagar just takes Ishmael and sets him under a tree, and she goes off to the distance, and, and she can't be there to hear him cry as he dies. So I don't think he had a bunch of flocks and herds at this point. But I think, and you'll see in just a moment why I believe this, that throughout his lifetime, and then here close to the end, that Abraham provided for Ishmael. <clears throat> and again, uh, we'll, we'll get to that point. And he probably gave him silver and other possessions as well. Keturah's uh, sons probably received some of the same kinds of gifts, although we're not told exactly what gifts they were given. And then he sent them away to the east. Wearsby in his commentary says, Abraham recognized his other children by giving them gifts and sending them away, thereby making sure they couldn't supplant Isaac as the rightful heir. Abraham takes care of all of this ahead of time. This is wonderful. It, it's, it's incredible that, that Abraham did this because some, some fathers don't do this. Uh, some other leaders don't do this and kind of pave the way for the next generation. But Abraham did. He was faithful to this covenant. And he just smooths the way for Isaac. The imagery of going east in, in the book of Genesis is not only a geographical location, but also the physical separation from God and his blessing. We see that uh, time and time again. Adam and Eve went east when they were evicted from the Garden of Eden. Lot went east when he separated from Abraham. The inhabitants of Babel had traveled east to build their tower. Jacob will flee to the east when he steals his brother's birthright 
All of Isaac's potential rivals are dismissed to the east. They're not the covenant people. And God has chosen Isaac and his descendants as the covenant people to fulfill his promise and purposes. Jesus will come through the line of Isaac. And so, the will has been executed prior to Abraham's death. He kind of does it himself. Isaac gets everything, and, and all the other sons get gifts from, from their father's estate. Now, I want to ask you this question today. How many of you would be grateful if your family member executed their own will? How many of you have ever been through that process and thought, oh my goodness, why did they name me the executor of this estate? <laughs> this is not fun. Things change over time, and uh, you know, my, my dad's family is still going through the execution of my grandma's will, and uh, there's things that got hung up simply because things had changed from the time that will was written till it was executed. Abraham just kind of takes care of all of that for his family. What comes next in the narrative is Abraham's obituary. Let's look at that, verses 7 to 10. This is what God's word says. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. And so what we see here is some of the things that we would find in an obituary today, right? His age. The narrator tells us Abraham's age. When he died, he was 175 years old. And during Abraham's time period, that was considered old. Prior to that, there were guys living seven, eight, nine hundred years. But in Abraham's time frame, 175, that was pretty old. He had lived in Canaan for a century. For 100 years he had been there. And Isaac's now 75 and Jacob and Esau are 15. That just goes back to our first principle, that God keeps his promises. This was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 15 says this, You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Now, Abraham had no idea what a good old age was. He wasn't told at that point, but we know now that it's 175 years old. We not only know how old Abraham was, but we also know a little about his frame of mind when he passed. The phrase, full of years, includes both quantity and quality of life. Hamilton says this, This obituary notice about Abraham draws attention to the fact that Abraham died not only, as an elderly, not only at an elderly age, but in a frame of mind filled with inner shalom, which is peace, and satisfaction. In his commentary, James Montgomery Boyce says this, and it's kind of a sad state of affairs. He says, several years ago, I was talking with some lay people about a problem in one of our American denominations, and I asked why there had not been any progress in a certain area. One person replied, there is not going to be any progress until some people die. Later, I reflected on how sad it was when someone is such a problem that people actually wait for that person's death and inevitably greet the news of it with thanksgiving. Isn't that sad? That's how some people are. And, you know, we, we avoid doing certain things so that we don't have to make that person upset, so that we don't uh, cause any, you know, undue division 
So we wait. Boyce goes on, he says, How different with those who have walked close to the Lord, having been a blessing to others by the quality of their life and testimony, then people are thankful for the life and not for the fact that it has ended. Wearsby says this, How few people really experience joy and satisfaction when they reach old age. When they look back, it is with regret. When they look ahead, it is with fear. And when they look around, it is with complaint. Isn't that sad? I'm reminded of what my father said several years ago. He was reflecting on his life, and he told me that he is ready to go home to be with the Lord. There's nothing else on a bucket list that he needs to do. There isn't any, anything else he needs to accomplish in his life to feel fulfilled, satisfied, or at peace. Now, my dad's not ill, at least that I'm aware of. He's in pretty good health, so is my mom. My dad's like 76 or seven, somewhere in there. Take me a minute. 77. Uh, my mom's like 81 or something. Good health. So neither of them. But they're both in that stage of life where they're like, there's nothing else we need to do. We, we've accomplished all that God's asked us to do. And they're just looking with inner peace and satisfaction at the day that they get to meet the Lord. That was the frame of mind with which I, Abraham comes to the end that's what it means to be full of years he's like i am at peace with god and others i'm satisfied with what i've done how many of us know family members who have expressed the same feelings at the end that leads us to principle two today living a faithful righteous life brings joy and satisfaction psalm chapter 92 verses 12 to 15 tell us this the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. That's how I want to end my life, is in that way. I want to be fruitful into my old age. I want to be still fresh and green. I want to be proclaiming that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock, and there's no wickedness in him. So where are you at today? What's your frame of mind? Are you aging gracefully? Are you at peace with God and others? Are you looking forward to death with joy? You're like, what? I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> yeah, are you looking forward to it with joy, with satisfaction, with peace? Are you satisfied with how your life has gone? And guess what? You have a choice. Are you living a faithful, righteous life? That kind of life brings joy and satisfaction. You can experience inner peace and satisfaction. You can say like my father and like Abraham and like many others that you are fulfilled, satisfied, and at peace with your life. So maybe you need to take this second next step today, and that's to strive to live a faithful, righteous life so that I can experience inner peace and satisfaction as I grow old. Some of us have more time than others to accomplish this, but I want to encourage you to embrace the time that you have to live a life that's faithful and righteous. 
the final part of Abraham's obituary is the location of his burial. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It's wonderful to see that Isaac and Ishmael are together. This is why I think that, that Abraham was still providing or provided more than just food and, and a skin of water for Ishmael when he sent him away. Because there's Ishmael. He's in the picture. They come together and they bury their father. And they, he, he's buried where Sarah's at in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre. It's the cave... It was part of the field that Abraham had purchased from Ephron, son of Zoar, the Hittite. And then we see in the final verse of this section the transition from Abraham to Isaac. Look at that in verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near uh, Be'ar Lache Roi. And so what we see here is Isaac's living um, where Hagar had fled after being mistreated by Sarah. And it was in that section I showed you earlier. The name of the well there means well of the living one who sees me. Hagar's the one who named it. That's how she felt after being visited by the Lord at the well. That leads us then to this blessing that Isaac gets from God. And our third principle today, that God blesses his covenant people. Isaac was the covenant son through whom the Messiah would come. He and his descendants had been set apart by God. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are God's covenant people too. Obedience to God's covenant brings blessing. And we can experience God's blessing when we obey his covenant. There's a new covenant that God has given us through Jesus Christ. We see it in Jeremiah. He's writing about it long before Jesus came. Jeremiah chapter 31 beginning at verse 31 to 34. I'll get there. There we go. This is what God's word says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be, uh, yeah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Here's this new covenant. We see four promises here. Uh, from this passage of Scripture. By the way, this uh, passage in Jeremiah is repeated, uh, it's quoted word for word in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. So we see it in the New Testament as well. But we see four promises here. The first one is this. God promises that he will write his laws in their hearts to sanctify them, to make them holy, aligning their hearts and characters with his. That's going to be different than the original covenant. Number two, God promises to be their God and make them his people, to reconcile them to himself. Number three, God promises to reveal himself to the whole world, and he promises that the day is coming when that will not be necessary anymore because everyone will know him from the least to the greatest. The harmony of Eden will be restored. And then number four, God promises to forgive our sins and remember them no more in order to justify us so that we can stand before God as though we had never sinned. We see this covenant, this new covenant, 
Paul is remembering the Last Supper. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see that new covenant, and it's in the blood of Jesus Christ. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit to live within his disciples. That's how we have God's law in our minds and written on our hearts. We have God's word, the Bible, so we can know the Lord. God has forgiven our wickedness and sin through Jesus Christ. And we see what that accomplishes in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And maybe that's the step you're ready to take today. And that's to believe in Jesus Christ as my savior so I can experience the blessing of eternal life. When we're obedient to that covenant, it brings blessing. And here it's an incredible blessing. It's eternal life. As we review, is there a promise from God that you need to claim today? Do you need to strive to live a faithful and righteous life so you can experience inner peace and satisfaction? And then are you ready to experience the blessing of eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior? As a body of believers, we can encourage one another to claim the promises of God. When you're talking to someone and they're down, just say, hey, God promises this, protection and peace and provision and His presence. So it's it's on us to just encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm sorry that you're going through this difficult time. Let me remind you of the promises of God. And we need to urge one another on in living a faithful and righteous life. <coughs> Ken Fusen actually wrote his own tribute before passing. Here it is. Ken Fusen, born June 23, 1956, died... January 3rd, 2020, in a Nebraska medical center of liver cirrhosis and is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. Ken attended the University of Missouri, Columbia's famous school of journalism, which is a clever way of saying almost graduated but didn't. Facing a choice between covering a story for the newspaper or taking his final exams, Ken went to the story, or went for the story. He never claimed to be smart, just committed. He's having fun with his obituary, by the way. In 1981, Ken landed his dream job working as a reporter for the Des Moines Register. Ken won several national feature writing awards. No, he didn't win a Pulitzer Prize, but he's dead now, so get off his back. In 2011, Ken accepted a job in the marketing department at Simpson College, where he remained until 2018. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of 2019, which is pretty ironic given how little he drank. He is survived by his sons, who all brought Ken unsurpassed joy. He hopes they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was and is extraordinarily proud to be their father. Ken had many character flaws, if he still owes you money, he's sorry, sincerely. <laughs> he prided himself in, on letting other drivers cut in line. 
For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him, but his church friends never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it. Miracles abound. Ken's pastor says God can work miracles for you and through you. Skepticism may be cool, and for too many years, Ken embraced it, but it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. That was the one thing he never regretted. It changed everything. God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Ken promises to let you cut in line. <laughs> Maybe that'll help you as you work on your own obituary. Maybe you want to have some fun with it. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to leave that to your family and the funeral director to put together for you. But we see just this incredible example of this obedience to God's covenant that Abraham had, and it brought incredible blessing. We can bring incredible blessing to our family in our passing. I know for Judy and I, we're excited that, that this new will will have, uh, it's a Christian will, so it's going to have our testimonies in it. That those that hear the reading of that will know that we love Jesus. That we want others to know the love of Jesus. And so as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we just come to you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of this incredible um, uh, patriarch of faith that we find in Genesis. Lord, we thank you for his example to us today and being obedient to the covenant. Lord, would we be obedient to your covenant, this new covenant in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just move by your spirit and work in hearts and minds, that people would take the steps that you desire for them to take to today for your honor and glory. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we...